Welcome. This is the Black Dahlia and the Blue Dahlia podcast, episode 11. I'm your host, Scott Tracy. The caretaker of Lincoln Park, east of downtown Los Angeles, discovers the body of a middle-aged woman at 9 a.m. on December 10th, 1946. The woman has been hit in the head with a five-inch bolt. Her half-nude body lay in the shrubs adjacent to the public men's room. Hers is a slow, painful death in the darkest night. When found, she has no money or jewelry. The implication is that she's been robbed and did not go quietly. The woman has multiple sets of clothing with her, and the police describe her as a transient hitchhiker. The Herald Express comes up with a moniker, the Red Hibiscus Murder, based on the flower bushes near the body. No one cares about the Red Hibiscus Murder. It's one month before the Black Dahlia headlines, and Naomi Tullis Cook, age 52, is identified by her brother, who has not seen her in 20 years. A homeless person whose body is four feet from the public park men's toilet is a sad story, a tragedy, however, that captures little public interest. The Naomi Cook story lacks empathy. The public perceives homelessness as an indication that the victim has given up on life. A flower headline alone cannot capture the imagination of the public. The Naomi Cook story appears again in the newspaper a few days later when a Hispanic youth gang is arrested on December 14th. A 15-year-old boy, a 16-year-old, two 17-year-olds, and an 18-year-old boy are collectively known as the Happy Valley Gang. Police report the boys confessed to hitting Naomi with an object, then running away. The third time the Cook murder story is referenced is on February 18, 1947, when the charges are dropped against the boys. Two months have gone by without a mention, and the confessions do not hold. The primary interest of the Los Angeles Police Department in the death of a transient is their attempt to fit the crime to this Mexican youth gang whose 18-year-old leader has the correct nickname of Babyface. No other newspaper picks up on the Red Hibiscus murder moniker. The Los Angeles Times mentions the moniker for the first time in 1999 when Larry Harnish writes an article about the myth and mystery of the Black Dahlia and offers the moniker as an example of how newspapers commonly used flower names to describe the murders back in the day. The Red Hibiscus murder is a dud of a name. It demonstrates how little it matters when a crime is assigned a name, a flower, or otherwise, by the press, when a transient woman sleeping on a public bench has died. There are very few developments in the Black Dahlia case at the end of February and the beginning of March, in contrast to the Red Hibiscus murder, the police remain active and the press reports anything it can on any Black Dahlia lead. For example, following up on a telephone tip that was called in from a bar, the police arrested a Glendale machine operator who was overheard talking about his short girlfriend. 
He's released on Valentine's Day when it's realized that his short girlfriend is five foot three and not named Elizabeth. Bartender Charles Durant is arrested on suspicion. After he requests that his blonde hair be dyed black in a Hollywood beauty salon. Philip Smalley, twice divorced electrician from Tennessee, is arrested in San Francisco and brought to Los Angeles to be confronted with witnesses in both the Dahlia and Jeannie French cases. Detective Sergeant William Cummings declared, We can connect him with both cases. He denies knowing either of the two women, but on the basis of our investigation in Los Angeles, we're convinced he's lying. When taken to Los Angeles, Smalley is identified by bartenders as a companion to the Black Dahlia, and he admits when shown photographs of Elizabeth Short, quote, that could have been the girl he met on January 9th at the Circle Bar in Ocean Park. Smalley has changed his story multiple times, settling on how they met in Santa Monica and then she drives him 20 miles to Long Beach. They pick up two sailors along the way. Quote, she dropped me off at a hotel and drove off with the sailors. Then Smalley picks up another girl and can't remember what he did from that point on until January 26th. Quote, I went on a drunk, he said. This is an odd story I've never heard of Beth driving. Police do check Smalley's movements through five California cities and his tale of 12 lost days after his night with the Black Dahlia. In time, it's discovered that Smalley met Phyllis St. Cyr, not Beth. It is noteworthy how often the police exaggerate the culpability of a current suspect as he's paraded before the press and the variance in press coverage between local and out-of-town newspapers once again is worthy of our consideration. In the San Francisco Examiner, Smalley is an electrician, and in the accompanying photo, Citizen Smalley dresses as a typical businessman on the street in a tweed jacket, a vest, and striped tie. By all appearances, Smalley is a trustworthy person getting out of a cab or walking into a bank. In the Los Angeles Times, Smalley is listed as a transient laborer. The photo in the Los Angeles Examiner is shot from below, while Smalley is being interviewed by the police, and it allows the bright police light to frame him. Smalley looks like a Boris Karloff's stand-in. I have some comparison photos on the webpage to amuse you. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office finds bloody clothing in a canyon runoff culvert. Police chemist Ray Pinker says the clothing was covered with human blood, but, quote, we've examined more than 100 such pieces since Elizabeth Short's death, end quote. On February 16th, the Los Angeles Times reports that the Los Angeles Police Department express with certainty that the murderer of Elizabeth Short is no longer in the city. Detectives admitted their last hope for a solution to the gruesome crime is the possibility of the killer being arrested elsewhere on some other charge. Well, I'm not sure what to make of this notion as it is presented as a certainty, and it's, well, it's not a certainty. Likely this is a shout-out 
in the local papers in an attempt to get the Black Dahlia Avenger to communicate with the police as he has done before. In the Red Hibiscus murder, there are a few details, and when there is no news, there is no story in the newspapers. In contrast, the Black Dahlia murder investigation has significant coverage when there's no news, and as the police investigation becomes quiet, the citizens volunteer in surprising numbers as if the whole town has a Black Dahlia fever. For example, Marvin Hart, a 35-year-old Hollywood fitness trainer, volunteers that he lived in the same building as Elizabeth Short to a cab driver. He's arrested and released after police conclude that he's just drunk bragging about his dates with the Black Dahlia. David Hughes, 23, a car thief, tells police he was tired of running away from the cops. I didn't kill her, he volunteered, but I know the cops want to question me. Hughes is dismissed as a suspect when officers realize he claims to have met the Black Dahlia on January 19th, four days after her mutilated body was discovered. Hughes is dismissed as a suspect and handed over to the San Diego police on grand theft auto charges. John Andre, a 30-year-old Navy man, begins his evening celebrating with his wife. The evening ends with the sailor alone in jail booked on suspicion of murder. Andre uh, is arrested after drunk boasting to a woman he just met in a bar in Long Beach that the Black Dahlia murder is not such a big deal. The sailor volunteers that he knows all about cutting up a woman's body. It is surprising the number of drunk men who think a good way to break the ice is to brag about bisection. An unnamed volunteer makes the newspaper when at the edge of the water, at the base of Brooks Avenue on Venice Beach, the Los Angeles Police Department finds a pile of men's clothing at the shoreline. Inside a shoe is an unsigned suicide note written in pencil. Quote, to whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I'm too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that or this. Sorry, Mary. End quote. Left on the beach, a tweed coat and trousers, a t-shirt, a white jockey shorts, and uh, tan socks and tan moccasins size 8. Was this the Black Dahlia suicide note? Not likely. Drowning in the ocean as suicide is a movie trope. It's a dramatic visual and very effective cost-wise. Drowning accidentally in the ocean can happen in rough seas or in riptides, but suicide by walking into calm waters like Venice Beach is not common or likely. Why would the concept of suicide even occur to a psychopath who believes the killing of Beth Short is justified? Black Dahlia fever reaches the California legislature as Assemblyman Richard Dolwig sponsors a bill permitting the sterilization of perverts and feeble-minded persons. There certainly is a palpable public dissatisfaction and outrage concerning the number of sexually-based crimes and the number of unsolved murders on the rise. In the previous year in Los Angeles, there were 147 murders and all but 25 are solved. 
one out of six. As of March 11th of 1947, the county and city have 13 unsolved murders out of 36 deaths. More than one in three murders are unsolved. The Los Angeles newspapers report that the police department have added 250 officers in an effort to crush the crime wave, which started with the mutilation killing of Elizabeth Short, end quote. So roadblocks surprised motorists at seven main intersections on the 1st of March as police teams halted and checked all automobiles. 35 suspects are arrested on suspicion of burglary and police collected an assortment of pistols, knives, and clubs found in cars or on persons who were shaken down. Elizabeth Short's death is not the beginning of a crime wave any more than Naomi Cook's death was. The gruesome Black Dahlia murder is the beginning of a panic associated with the public consumption of headlines about sex killings. The most mind-boggling volunteer story is that of schoolgirl Jacqueline Stang. She's found beneath a railroad underpass, nearly nude, her body gashed and burned with a cigarette. Miss Stang is a 5-foot, 17-year-old young girl who is blonde. She claims she was followed by a man as she was walking home from high school in Long Beach. I ran, but he grabbed me when I was near an alley, and that's all I can remember. I felt like he put a leather glove over my mouth. Doctors treated lacerations across her chest and a burn of her wrist. She had been bound with strips from her own underwear. Quote, I think he chloroformed me when he put the glove over my mouth. When I came to, I had no clothes on. The man was scratching me. He blew smoke into my mouth and laughed fiendishly. He burned my left wrist with his lighted cigarette. Then a stray little dog came running up and barked. This scared the man and he beat it in his car. You heard correctly. She claims her attacker blew cigarette smoke and laughed like a fiend. Luckily, she's saved by the aggressive bark of a small stray. The reason her story is packed with movie cliches is that Jacqueline made the whole thing up. The 17-year-old girl refused to give any reason for perpetrating the hoax, but friends said she'd been fascinated with details of the Black Dahlia murder and wondered if she would be expelled from school if she was attacked. She burns herself with a cigarette, scratches herself, and ties herself up with her own underwear and expects to be found by a good Samaritan in order to get out of school. People are scarring themselves over the Black Dahlia hysteria. You know, I said in the beginning of podcast number one that the Black Dahlia is the angel of death for the city of Los Angeles. It's very evident here in the way that the entire city embraces this murder as an event in their personal life. A small-town newspaper, the Santa Clarita Signal, has an unfortunate reaction to Black Dahlia fever. It's a, a disappointing editorial choice in tone that's made on February 27, 1947. The front-page headline reads, Woman's Corpse in Fairmont Reservoir, No Black Dahlia Case. Quote, the only chance the unincorporated territory of Los Angeles County 
has had to get in on some of the juicy Black Dahlia-type crime fiction went bluey this week when autopsy surgeons decided that the female remains discovered in the Fairmont Reservoir were caused by drowning and not beating. Picknickers thought of the Black Dahlia case when they discovered the partially nude body this last Sunday, period. The deceased, Mrs. Mary Muldoon, aged 37, a stenographer, disappeared from her place of residence at the Roslyn Hotel in downtown Los Angeles on January 14th. Her husband made out a missing persons report. But with nothing more to go on, and the big Black Dahlia case still being nursed along, the officers and newspapers quietly dropped the matter of Mrs. Mary Muldoon. What an outrage to diminish the life and memory of Mary Muldoon with this inappropriate attempt at humor. Bluey, it's shameful. Mary Muldoon had a husband and a home. She was missed. Note the date she disappears, January 14th, the same time frame as Beth Short. Other newspapers do offer more traditional reporting, and it states that Mary had been arrested twice for public intoxication in the month she lived in Los Angeles. Her husband had hoped she'd return, and so he waited three days before he reported her missing. The body was not naked. Mary was wearing a man's T-shirt and a man's pullover sweater. It's estimated she was in the water for 10 days, so she'd been missing and alive for a month. Police made efforts to trace her movements and failed. Her non-news death illustrates the power of real estate in reporting and in policing. Location, location, location. The Black Dahlia is a dump site in a quiet residential area where children ride bicycles and a mother strolling with her three-year-old daughter finds a woman cut in half. The message to the citizens of Los Angeles for this suburban crime is, you are not safe. That's what resonates so very much. On the morning of March 12th, there are reports that two women have been killed and both bodies are dumped in vacant areas on the same day, miles apart. Evelyn Winter's partially nude body was found sprawled near a line of freight cars east of downtown Los Angeles. Her dress had been drawn up to her neck. She'd been bludgeoned on the left temple, the left eye, and her skull fractured. Multiple cuts on her back indicated Winters had been dragged over the ground before being left in the rail yard. The partially nude body of May Preston, seen by Japanese truck farmers on a riverbed bank in Norwalk before 9 a.m., she was clad only in a blue and white dressing gown. The red-haired woman's face was cut and badly swollen. She is identified quickly by the FBI because May Preston, age 46, worked for Bethlehem Steel in 1943. Her address is 115 Burton Street, Bellflower, well south of downtown Los Angeles. Sheriff deputies believe the woman had been strangled in her bed after a fight with her assailant and then taken to the river in an automobile where her body was dragged up a bank at the side of the road and dumped into the high grass. A pillow and some bed clothing had been tossed above onto the bank. The May Preston murder is a crime that the 1947 police are prepared to solve. May had a lover who was brought in for questioning. The police have identified 
a father and the son who came to the Preston house to feed chickens. They are questioned. Frank Funk, 52, a cement contractor. Myron, his 23-year-old son, confesses. The Evelyn Winters murder presents some similarity to the Jeannie French and Elizabeth Short murders in that these are the crimes that the 1947 police are going to struggle to solve. Winters is homeless, like Naomi Cook and Beth Short. Evelyn Winters, a Vassar graduate and a legal professional, for the motion picture industry would be the most intellectual of the lone women victims. However, her whip-smart prime is behind her. She spiraled into a life of alcoholic depression and addiction. Like Jeannie French, Evelyn is murdered, then her body is dragged a short distance to the dump site. There is found clothing, one shoe and undergarments, at the corner of Center Street and Banning Avenue that suggests that Evelyn Winters is raped and beaten there. Her body dumped two blocks north and east off Ducumman Road in a Pacific Railroad right-of-way lane. Her body is discovered at 10 minutes after midnight by George Wickafee, a 28-year-old railroad section hand. George sees the naked woman lying on the ground as he's coming back from a movie and kisses her on the lips, only to realize that this night is his unlucky night. The woman is dead. Officials find lipstick and blood on his face, and George is arrested, photographed by the press for maximum humiliation, and then released. The blows struck upon Evelyn would not normally be fatal except for the very high level of alcohol in her system, 0.28. Indeed, a little higher, 0.35, would cause death on its own. The Winters murder is only on our radar because it happens after the Short murder. Otherwise, it would disappear in the same manner as the Naomi Cook murder. There are few ties between the Evelyn Winters tragedy and the Black Dahlia mystery. The primary commonality is the vulnerability of homelessness and the difficulty for police to trace movements when a victim has no place of residence and are not likely to be missed. The Black Dahlia lust killer is organized and premeditated. Elizabeth Short is young and sober. She was tortured, bisected, and displayed. Evelyn Winters' situational killer was opportunistic and disorganized. Winters is weak, older, drunk to the point of oblivion, and already near death when raped and then dragged to an obscure location where she dies. The Hollywood success of Winters' past provides pathos. However, the criminal investigation stalls very soon after it starts. Homeless for six months at the time of her death, Winters has no sense of order or pattern in her life other than she keeps a suitcase of her belongings behind the counter at a friendly liquor store. She spends her days at the library and her nights in beer taverns. And occasionally she has a scheduled meeting once a month with her mother. As police trace her final steps, they discover Winter's excessive consumption of alcohol on her last night very much puts her on a deadly path before she met her rapist killer four hours earlier. Winters is intoxicated when she leaves James Turner in his room at the Albany Hotel on West 6th near Central. 
woozy when she leaves. Evelyn finds a new drinking partner in 23-year-old Grover McCubrey, then staggers onward into the darkness. Neither Evelyn Winters or Mae Weston are mutilated. Evelyn Winters is raped. Similar to Georgette Bauerdorf, it's likely the crime of rape involves quieting of the witness that results in murder. On this day in Manhattan, there is a famous death. May 1st, 1947, Evelyn McHale thoughtfully places her makeup kit with family photos and black purse against the observation deck wall on the 86th floor of the Empire State Building. Inside that purse is a suicide note. She neatly folds a cloth coat over them both and then waits until the guard is distracted before jumping. She clears the setbacks of the Empire State Building and falls 1,050 feet to her death, an act that requires an excessive amount of depression and a certain amount of courage. McHale lands with significant impact, crushing the roof of a United Nations Cadillac limousine parked on 34th Street. Robert Wiles, a young photography student, crosses the street and catches this moment. This photo will be printed in Life magazine and is given a title, The Most Beautiful Suicide. Evelyn McHale has landed on her back. Her face and body appear to be untouched. But if one looks closely, one stocking has fallen to her ankle. Evelyn is serenely posed, clutching her pearls, creating an impression that she's found peace. Her suicide note suggests otherwise. The outside image does not match what she feels inside. She just spent the previous day with her fiance, Barry Rhodes, who told reporters, when I kissed her goodbye, she was happy and normal as any girl about to be married. Every day in the newspaper, violent acts are rained upon the vulnerable. Naomi Cook, Jeannie French, and Evelyn Winters, these women made choices resulting in a chain of events that they were not likely to survive. These unplanned murders of high-risk victims are crimes of opportunity. The killers are hungry like a spider in these instances. Is it fair to assign a percentage of the blame to the victim? And certainly there are occasions where death is an unconscious suicide. Our society thinks drug overdose carries a stigma of suicide because the risk of death is accepted when the needle is placed in the arm. Evelyn Winters and Naomi Cook are victims engaging in very high-risk behaviors fueled by depression and alcohol. The choices that make them helpless uh, to escape the, the brutal violence. So is suicide an unconscious desire when life holds so little value? It's an important question when we compare these uh, lone women murders, certainly. Not that suicide is a victimless crime. Returning to the Evelyn McHale story, her fiancé never married, and the young photographer student never published another photo. On May 2nd, in South Los Angeles, the body of Dorothy Montgomery is found under a pepper tree in a vacant field at the end of a dirt road on Grape Street, two miles from her Firestone Park home. 
Her head is bludgeoned with a heavy object, her breast slashed with a knife, her clothing shredded and stripped from her body. She's been strangled. There's a small butterfly brooch under the naked body, and the local Hearst papers refer to the killing as the butterfly murder. As in the Naomi Cook murder, no other newspaper picks up on the moniker. One shoe is near the body, the other is found near the family car five miles away, and there's blood on both shoes. Comparisons to the Black Dahlia dominate the headlines, but the crime bears more similarity to the Gertrude Landon murder. Nude, housewife, uh, not raped, dumped in a isolated site, no robbery, and no carjacking, but the car plays a role in the investigation and something is wrong. Because of their quiet and steady lifestyles, Montgomery and Landon are both categorized as low-risk victims. Everything is normal and routine until something mysterious and deadly happens. Dorothy Montgomery has three children and a second husband. Her life is her daughter's and church. She doesn't get into cars with strangers. She doesn't go dancing or drink alcohol. And she thinks less of those who do. Her husband is a refrigerator repairman who drinks. The Los Angeles Daily News offers a typical representation of the murder. Quote, Examination of the area near where Mrs. Montgomery's nude and mutilated body revealed no trace of the weapon used to beat her on the head before she was strangled to death. Investigators found a small golden butterfly pin under the body of the 36-year-old mother. Missing, however, were a gold wristwatch, a diamond ruby engagement ring, a gold ruby wedding ring she was wearing at the time she was slain, and her coin purse, which contained green plastic sales tax tokens from Missouri. Left behind was $35 in currency inside the handbag. Authorities said the murder of the respectable mother, wife, and church worker had none of the sordid overtones of the Black Dahlia cycle of mutilation slayings. One common characteristic, however, existing between all four murders was that each case, the bodies were mutilated and none were raped. End quote. That's not true. Winters was raped and not mutilated. And, you know, I'm not sure that I would categorize Jeannie French's murder as a mutilation murder either. But returning to the news, quote, The sheriff's office said Mrs. Montgomery left her home Friday night to pick up her daughter, Maceal, 15, at the Slauson Avenue playground. Apparently, her assailant entered the car, forced her to drive to the vacant lot at 91st and Grape Streets, killed her, stripped and mutilated her, and returned the car to the Hooper Street address opposite the playground. The sheriff's office said an investigation into all sex crimes in the last several months would be made to tie the identification of Mrs. Montgomery's suspected murderer. Detective Sutton said Thomas Montgomery, the husband, was cleared of all suspicion. The murder must have been the act of a sadist, Sutton said the type that hangs around playgrounds and molests children. Newspapers report the findings of the autopsy saying that Mrs. Montgomery was met by the choking fingers of a human hand which apparently gripped her throat from behind. Wow, that's some melodrama in that statement. Death by the choking fingers of a human hand. It reads like a movie poster tagline. 
Returning to the autopsy, her scalp was severely lacerated at the back of the neck, back of the head. The skull is not fractured and no concussion is apparent. The LA Times concludes with the fact that, quote, her clothes were ripped from her body in shreds, led detectives to hold the theory that the murderer was a sex fiend, end quote. So from the beginning, Dorothy Montgomery is introduced as the fourth victim of the series, and this impression may have had a significant impact on the jury when Dorothy's husband is brought to trial. A sheriff's department lab technician finds blood stains on the steering wheel of Montgomery's car, on small pieces of gravel beneath the clutch pedal, and in the nail holes of his shoes. However, the blood stains on Thomas Montgomery's shoes matches the blood stains on Dorothy Montgomery's shoes and its rabbit blood. The family harvests bunnies in the backyard. A man living closest to the dump site, G.W. Thomas, age 54, auto mechanic, saw something white from a distance at 10.25 in the morning when he was working on his car. Thomas lives on Grape Street, and this is an area with remnants of an agricultural past. The body is found under a tree 30 feet from a dirt road that runs through the vacant lot. If Thomas doesn't find the body, no one else will. It is that isolated of a location. Mr. Montgomery has two German shepherds. He likely would know this field as a place he could let his dogs run. At the inquest, Thomas Montgomery denies killing his wife, but admitted to the jury that he had three violent arguments with her prior to her slaying. Montgomery says he last saw his wife alive when he accompanied her to their car. The next time I saw her, was when I identified her body under the pepper trees. I don't know who killed her. I didn't. Maceal Montgomery testified at the inquest that she waited for her mother for more than 45 minutes at the playground. Then she walked home with her friends, and her father was at the house when she arrived. Friends of Dorothy Montgomery expected to see her before she was to go to Slauson Park. Mr. and Mrs. Harry Berry of South Broadway said Dorothy was to stop at their home Friday night before continuing on to pick up her 15-year-old daughter. The purpose of the visit was to discuss plans for a shower for Mrs. Montgomery's other daughter, the newly married Rosella Jones. So Dorothy Montgomery never arrives at the Berry household. Everything about this crime that doesn't make sense does so in a way that serves to eliminate the prospect that a stranger, a sex addict and maniac who hangs around playgrounds, has committed the crime. The evidence points to the husband. On the first day, the newspaper says the killer drops the body off and then returns the car to the playground at Slauson. That makes no sense. Why would a stranger risk being seen in the death car twice, coming and going. And this vacant lot is very isolated. 92nd Street at that time does not go through to Alameda. It's a dead end. Elizabeth Short's body, you remember, is just two feet from the sidewalk. Jeannie French's body is 15 feet away from the road. There is no road to the lot where Dorothy Montgomery is found. A dirt path runs through it next to G.W. Thomas's house, and the body is found 30 feet from that rough trail. 
there is no way you would know that little pepper tree grove existed unless you lived within walking distance. Dorothy was due at the Berry household and didn't show, didn't call. That just doesn't make sense unless she's dead before 9.30. Well, she's due there before picking up Maceal, and they're going to need an hour to talk about the party plans. The rabbit blood on our shoes is always kind of interesting to me. I mean, why I would expect you to clean up before you go to someone else's house. And I made that point to a friend of mine who's a farmer, and she said, you obviously don't know anything about people who raise rabbits, and so point taken, I don't. But thinking about it, I wonder if Thomas Montgomery killed a rabbit after slicing his dead wife's breast. Then the murder weapon is disguised in plain view. It doesn't make sense to me that a stranger would take rings, wedding rings, engagement rings, and a watch, and leave cash. The jewelry can be traced, not the cash. So, of course, it's not a stranger. Jewelry is personal. Strangulation by hand is personal. All of the non-Dahlia body dump sites are impersonal and degrading. Evelyn Winters is dragged from a car and left in the dirt. French is dragged from a car through mud. Rosenda Moondragon is thrown from a car into the gutter. Naomi Cook is rolled into the bushes in a public park. Or Murray is rolled into a landscaping bed at the edge of a parking lot. Gertrude Landon is dumped in a gravel pit. Laura Trailsdad is dumped in an El Cerrito oil field access dirt road. All these women are discarded to the margins of the city. Dorothy Montgomery lies under the shade of a tree as if this vacant lot is a cemetery. I believe that the car and the body are staged. I believe that the cutting of the breast is staged. Thus, Thomas Montgomery hides her body in two ways. First, he hides it in a vacant lot. Then he hides it again by cutting across the breast. And with that mutilation, Dorothy is not Thomas Montgomery's wife anymore, but a victim of the Black Dahlia Avenger. This is not a copycat killing. It's very much a notional copycat killing, as the newspapers point the finger of suspicion at a notional werewolf. Dorothy Montgomery was strangled from behind. Consider how that compares to the other murders. The killer of Georgette Bauerdorf watched as he choked her to death. The killer of Elizabeth Short watched her bleed to death. The killer of Jeannie French watched as she collapsed under his feet. Dorothy Montgomery was hit in the back of the head and choked from behind. The killer does not want to watch her die. And why would you slice with a knife from the front when she's dead? The killer has a knife at Dorothy's breast. Why choke her at all? Stabbing her in the heart is quicker and easier if the knife's in the killer's hand. If this is a carjacking, the killer hits her over the head, strangles her and cuts her, then returns the car to Slauson Park. Well, then where is the knife? Where's the heavy object? They were not left at the vacant lot. They're not left in the car. Are we to think the killer parked the car and took a bloody knife and bloody blunt instrument with him on foot? There's no blood in the vacant lot. The blood in the family car is on the front left door, the running board, the steering wheel, and the rear seat. Importantly, though, Sheriff Inspector Nora Stensland did not believe that she was slain in the car. 
So was Dorothy Montgomery slain in the family garage? Thomas Montgomery says he took one of his dogs for a walk after his wife left in the car. Well, that would be an opportunity to dispose of any weapon when walking the dog. Thomas Montgomery is arrested for his wife's murder on May 12th. He's acquitted on August 1st after an hour and a half deliberation by the jury. This is a surprise to me. Evidence provided to the court is powerful. Horace Stanford, who lives next door to the Montgomery home, testified that he was listening to a nine o'clock radio broadcast when he first heard the scream, which he described as being that of a woman or a child. I ran out into the yard and heard another scream. It seemed to come from the front near the Montgomery home. I ran to the street and heard another scream, which seemed to come from the backyard. I returned to the alley and searched the vicinity, but could find nothing. A few minutes later, Stanford testified he'd heard the Montgomery car being started and driven away from the garage. Thomas Montgomery said that he last saw his wife at 9.30. Obviously, if Dorothy was going to visit the Barry household, she would have left an hour earlier because they're planning a celebration. In court, Maciel testified that her mother was expected at 10 p.m., and as she waited, Maciel saw the family car come toward her and then make a U-turn and go in the opposite direction. Witness James Kennedy identified Thomas Montgomery as the man he saw park the automobile at 10.30 and walk away from the car before returning to extinguish the headlights. Maciel testified she and her sister found two zippers and a few Missouri green plastic sales tax tokens, which had been in her mother's wallet and coin purse. The zippers were in a box of loquats in the family garage, she said. Maciel testified that she gave the zippers to her stepfather, Thomas Montgomery, who promised to turn them over to authorities, but told police he burned them. The stepdaughters come to believe that Thomas Montgomery is responsible for their mother's death. The jury of 12 strangers, five men and seven women, find him not guilty. One more thing. In the last episode, I spoke of John Douglas and his work with the FBI, and I presented him as an expert. I'm going to point out some issues this week with his conclusions in the Black Dahlia mystery and look at an overview of the Montgomery killing as well with an eye to profiling. First, it's fair to point out that John Douglas did not study the Black Dahlia mystery with the same level of intensity that he brought to his investigation of the Jack the Ripper murders or the Zodiac Killer. Douglas relies heavily on Severed, a book written by John Gilmore, and that's unfortunate. Gilmore's original intent was to write a screenplay, but with no buyers, he presented his script for publication in a true crime format the book has all the integrity of a historical movie because characters are condensed, situations are invented, historical timelines are ignored, facts are tweaked for the sake of telling a salacious story. From Gilmore, Douglas gets the idea that Elizabeth Short worked with Georgette Bauerdorf and that the Black Dahlia venture killed them both. Elizabeth Short was not in town when Bauerdorf was alive. John Gilmore's book is filled with mountains of conclusions that are based on molehills of research. He's to be ignored as a source of truth in the Black Dahlia murder. 
Let's talk about profiling with an eye to the limitations of the skill, and we're going to bring the concept of profiling to the Montgomery murder. As Douglas states, a profiler is not going to look at a crime scene and come up with an address and a phone number. The usefulness in profiling is strongest when there are multiple suspects, and the profile serves to exclude the innocent. So obviously this is a skill that's enhanced by experience and intuition. I have no experience, so I'm going to quote someone who does. Mary O'Toole, a FBI profiler, said that a profiler can look at a crime scene and draw conclusions about how planning was involved, whether it was a crime of opportunity or a targeted attack, how sophisticated is the offender about cleaning up forensic evidence, and if injury patterns show any evidence of sexual sadism. So these are conclusions that help form a picture of the offender. To apply this to the Montgomery murder, it can only be a crime of opportunity if Dorothy Montgomery was carjacked, and I dismiss the carjacking, as I said, because one, Maciel sees the family car come toward her at the park and then make a U-turn, and two, the car is brought back to the scene of the abduction. So that means this is a targeted attack and that means there are no suspects other than Thomas Montgomery. On the surface, the crime appears to be an example of the type of killer that the FBI would call organized. Thomas Montgomery is careful and it appears he makes every effort to thwart detection. The weapon is absent from the crime scene, the body is transported to a safe location, and the body is hidden. However, what's lacking is a level of sophistication that Mary O'Toole speaks of. Notice the number of times the killer acts like a husband instead of a stranger. He doesn't want to watch her die. Her body is placed under a shade tree. Her engagement and wedding rings are removed because the marriage is over. The car is returned to the playground area because that's where she was supposed to be. After he gets out of the car, he sees the headlights are on and he walks back to turn them off. Thomas Montgomery was found innocent, yet he was punished because he spent the rest of his life being suspected by his stepdaughters. Until next time.